It's the Rule Breaker Investing Podcast with Motley Fool co-founder David Gardner. Well, I don't have a big lead-in here. If you're listening to this bonus extra of this week's Rule Breaker Investing Podcast, you probably know it's a continuation of my interview with Candace Millard. Now, every question you're going to hear is fresh and additive, so this is in addition to our conversation earlier, and I just kind of pick it up right there. Thanks for listening. All right, Candace, picking up, well, not right where we left off, but not <laughs> far from it. Part of the allure of your work for me is that you're going back about a hundred years or so in each of these three books. Now, is is that a coincidence? Is is it your instinct? Or are you are you trying to specialize in some way? I'm fascinated by that period in time, and I I didn't set out thinking this is the time I I want to write about. It's just I happen to find stories within that time. But I will admit I love it. It's there's something very evocative about the late 19th, early 20th century, um, and I, I feel like you can really you can see it, but you can also hear it, smell it, taste it. Um, it's just um, sort of cinematic itself. Um, but but more than that, what draws me to that time is there's um, just a wealth of primary sources material, which is what you need in any nonfiction, but I think um, especially in narrative nonfiction, where you're trying to make a story come alive and trying to bring the reader with you back in time. And um, and so, if you have letters, if you have diaries, journals, um, newspaper accounts, um, then you can have dialogue, um, and then you can have all those great little details that do bring a story alive, so you can know sort of for instance, um, Churchill, when he was in this camp, I found out there were some eucalyptus trees around it. So you you know what it's going to smell like. And I found out, okay, they had to bathe in these little canvas tubs. And uh, I found out what they were eating. They're eating this disgusting meat that they actually, those dried meat that they actually then brought back out, the leftovers in World War One. Mm. <laughs> so um, all those things, you, you it helps you sort of experience it to the extent that you can, in the way that they actually did as they were living it. Let's talk a little bit, a bit about the writer and her craft. Um, now, I, I'm going to encourage each of us to check out Candace's website, which is CandaceMillard.com, because of its arresting, silent <laughs> movie that, that plays as soon as you open it up. Showing, it shows Candace, kind of an over-the-shoulder view, quietly at work in her study, with three big screens in front of her, uh, looking like a Wall Street trader, by the way. Um, <laughs> Books, papers, all around as we'd probably expect. It's it's cinematic. It's it's like you're writing. How how authentic is the scene depicted? It's very authentic. In fact, I was laughing with my sister because I just showed it to her. We did it this summer, and um, I had made the arrangements for the photographer to come, and he has this great sort of drone-like situation. But I forgot that it was going to be that day, and I just dropped my kids off at camp. I. As you can see, I have a very bushy ponytail. I'm in a shirt that I usually sleep in, so because it was dark that morning, I just grabbed something and I I walked to my office and there are these guys in my office. I think, oh no, it's today and I don't have time to go home. But I just did it and I thought, you know what? This is what I usually look like when I'm working. So this is the real deal. Really cool. Who did your website, by the way? It's pretty sweet. You know, it's actually I um, my office is in my husband's company, and he is. Um, it's um, very personalized publishing and software development. Okay. And it's a guy who works for him who's just really talented mm. and a really nice guy too. Do you love writing? Um, do you hate it? 
I do, love do you need it. deadlines? <laughs> I love it. I do not meet my deadlines, but I do have them. Um, no, every day I walk in my office, I think I can't believe this is my job. You know, it's and and most of my job is just reading. You know, for, for I spend years and years. Oh, I get to go out to incredible places and research and bring it all back and just sit in my office for years and read and try to absorb it and try to figure out how I'm going to tell this story, which, I mean, how lucky am I? You know, it's just, and then when I get to the, I mean, it's, you know, a good three years in before I even begin to touch the keyboard. And um, and then, and, and it's, some days it's painful. And most days I look at what I've written and think, please, God, let no one see this <laughs> until I can um, fix it. And no um, one does. And nobody does. And I, I wrestle with it and I struggle with it until I come up with something that I hope um, is readable. Uh, so, possibly an even geekier question than any I've asked so far. I, I use a Mac. Uh-huh. Um, I, I picture most <laughs> artists and writers, most rule breakers anyway, if you will, using a Mac. But is that a Hewlett Packard logo I see on your home PC? By the way, do You're you get paid big. any? Do you get paid any product placement for that logo appearing in your silent movie? I do not, but you're very perceptive. It is so. Again, my office is in my husband's company, and he actually started out with all Macs in his company too. But um, in business, a lot of times it's kind of hard. At least at that point, when he was sort of making a transition, at some point he decided to just switch over. So I have, but um, my at home I have a Mac and my laptop's a Mac Air. So right. I'm kind of. I do both, uh, and, and so do I. And you know, it's not that big a deal. Although Apple did try to make it quite a big deal in the PC or Mac ads of, of your. Um, so I'm stealing this question as a paraphrase from your signing last night, which I attended here at, uh, in Washington at Politics and Prose Bookstore, mm-hmm. an old haunt of yours, I understand. Yes. Uh, so this came from an otherwise to me anonymous woman, who asked you in so many words, "Do you allow yourself any liberties with the truth? Uh-huh. Is there any historical fiction?" in your books, in service, if you will, of telling a good story. And I was glad she asked that, because the answer is absolutely not. And it's very important to me. And it was interesting, she came up to me later and explained that she she writes historical fiction. Um, and But that's absolutely not what I do. And I was saying that it always makes me wince a little bit when people refer to my books as a novel. And I think that they just think that just means a weighty book or, or something. But it's purely nonfiction. And that's why it takes me a long time. You know, I've been writing books for 15 years. I've only written three. Um, and a lot of the process is just finding the idea. And um, I've had a lot of ideas I fell in love with, absolutely. But I just decided I can't do it because there's not enough primary source material. So I'm flattered that people say that they read like a novel, but that's a result of a lot, a lot of work and a lot of research. And you can look at the notes and see where everything came from. And even the dialogue. And even the dialogue, absolutely. I would never make up dialogue. You can get it. You know, people talk later about and you know in their diaries, or they'll write firsthand accounts um, and say this is a discussion we have, and that's where I get it. And again, if you're reading the book and you wonder if you have any questions, you can look at my notes and see exactly where I got it. So one of my questions that I I've pre-written all these by the way, which shows an unusual degree of of actually pre-work on my time before an interview, the lazy interviewer that I normally am. But one of my questions was going to be, I think you may have already spoken about, but what percent of the time do you spend researching versus what percent of the time writing plus editing, etc. And and where has your research taken you for your books? 
I mean, I would say it's maybe 80% research and organizing. So I'm a big outliner, too. I spend a lot of time outlining and figuring out how I'm going to tell the story before I start writing it. So it's a much smaller percent of actual writing. And I also say writing is thinking. You know, it's not, you know, typing or scribbling on a piece of paper. It's thinking, you know, figuring it out, understanding and and understanding how you're going to tell the story. Um, and so one of the best parts of my job is traveling and doing research. Um, I love being in archives. I love being in museums. I love being in somebody's house where something happened. I've spent a ton of time, obviously, at the Library of Congress. I'm a huge, huge fan of the Library of Congress. And I would encourage everybody to go. Anybody can go and get a reader ID card. And you can see these national treasures that we have. Um, but then I've been lucky enough um, to go uh, for River of Doubt. I went to this river, which is still incredibly remote and difficult to reach. I, um, I spent a lot of time in um, Rio just doing research, but then I went to a little town called Porto Velho, and I rented a little plane, and I hired a pilot, and we flew for hours over absolutely unbroken rainforest, horizon to horizon, and I found a little fishing camp on the river, kind of north on the river, and um, sort of set up shop there, and went up and down, and um, the Roosevelt's co-commander on that expedition um, carefully plotted everything out. So I had all the coordinates, I had a GPS, and I could see where everything happened. All right, let me switch gears, because that's what we do on this podcast. And Candace, I want to go to foolishness. So here we go with some capital F, foolishness. So the nature of the Motley Fool you may or may not have gathered, Mm -hmm. but particularly of rule-breaking, is that we have a lover's quarrel with our industry, sometimes the world at large. Um, our modus operandi is that as fools, we challenge conventional wisdom. And it's from this challenge that new ideas and sometimes better solutions emerge. So, do you see some of this capital F foolish streak running through Teddy Roosevelt or James Garfield or Winston Churchill? I actually do agree with that very much. And I think what's interesting, um, and is they have in common, these three men, is that they're all very much their own men, and they weren't concerned um, what other people thought. They weren't concerned with tradition, what had happened in the past, to the extent that they were going to sort of forge their own path. And, um, and what I think is interesting to them and to me um, in sort of a, a leadership role, which I, I think that your company is taking, is... Um, that not only do these men sort of radiate confidence themselves, they have a natural, innate confidence, but they inspire confidence in other people. And so when they say, look, I think that you are capable of being very brave, I think that you are very resourceful, I think that you have an extraordinary amount of determination, Um, people believe it. They believe them, and then they suddenly find themselves capable of doing things that they didn't think they could do. And I think that, especially for Churchill, that's what he's famous for doing in World War II. You know, it really shows the the power of of words. And you are in part developing characters, um, I would say reframing in some cases, famous people we thought we knew, or looking at small but telling <laughs> chapters in their lives. So developing characters, and some great ones. So another metagame question for you, Candace: how has your own character developed as a consequence of developing these characters, Roosevelt, Garfield, Churchill? 
I think that it's been very interesting uh, for me because my life has been so much wrapped up in these books for the last 15 years. So I have three children, I and and I've been having a, a book and a baby and a book and a baby all <laughs> along the way. This so you're going to have at least time. four children. It sounds like. <laughs> no, I think the children are seven. A little, a little too old for that now, but um, but. Um, it, it's been eye-opening for me um, because, especially, and I'll just tell you a quick personal story. After I um, um, had finished *The River of Doubt*, and actually the day my um, vinyl um, proofs were due for for that book, I, um, I I was pregnant. I was expecting a, my second child. I had three weeks. My editor didn't even know I was expecting. I was like, that doesn't really matter. I'm, I have three weeks to go. And I found out that um, she had a tumor inside of her. They found it in a sonogram, and I had to have her that day. And it was actually my other child's birthday. Um, and so I was thrust into this world. I was terrified. Um, turns out wow. she was born. She had uh, neuroblastoma. Um, and we, for the next two years, she underwent eight rounds of chemo. And, um, and what happened was that, you know, as I'm sitting with her in her hospital room, you know, the beeping lights, all the tubes in her and this little body, mm. um, I, I suddenly understood Roosevelt in a way I had never understood him. Even though I had spent years studying him, I had gone to this river, I had talked with his family, all this, um, all this primary source material that I had gone through, and it suddenly occurred to me, it, it wasn't about charting this river, it wasn't proving to people that he was still this extraordinary man after losing the election, it wasn't even about saving his own life, it was about saving his son. He had his son with him, and um, and that's where I could see him mm. so much more clearly than I had ever before, and that's where I, I felt this connection, sort of this this common humanity to this this historical figure. Mm. Uh, Candace, I feel compelled to ask, closing the loop on that, happy ending so far? Absolutely. Thank you for asking. Yeah, she's uh, 11 years old, just started middle school. She's still tested every year, um, but we're extraordinarily fortunate, and she's a healthy little girl. Mm. Candace, how about you? as maybe the capital F fool here, you as a professional writer or even just casual observer, do you yourself in either your work or your play view yourself as challenging conventional wisdom? Um, well, I do think, and I, I didn't set out to do this, but um, I do think the way I approach um, my books um, is a little different. Um, and um, I've had people tell me, oh, you have this niche, you know, and I, I don't think of it as a niche. I think of it, again, as telling a story that I hope is, is illuminating in, in some way. And, and I've also had people, especially now that I've written a book about Winston Churchill, um, and, and I have a, a British publisher, and, and I, I was laughing with my husband because um, my editor there, who's fantastic, but he was sort of awkwardly dancing around the subject. He's like, well, you know, it, it is unusual because you are um, an American uh, woman. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, yes, I, I am. That's true. Um, and I, I think that's fairly rare in, in Churchill's scholarship. Um, and he said, Do, does this affect the way you tell a story? And I said, I, I don't think it's because I'm American or because I'm a woman. I think it's just the way my mind works. You know, I'm not as interested in sort of the broad outlines of a story as I am in the in the details mm -hmm. and, and, and trying to, the best I can, struggling to... Um, really understand both the events and the results and the humanity behind a story. 
going to try a quick quote out on you just to hear, first of all, what you think of the quote, and second, if you can tell me who, who said it. This is oh, a completely no. unfair question. That's why we're doing it in the fun, long form podcast. At this, but Here it we at go. Me. So, first of all, just what do you think of it? Words are, in my not so humble opinion, our most inexhaustible source of magic, capable of both inflicting injury and remedying it. Churchill? I don't know. I'm guessing. Good guess. Good guess. What do you think of that? Do you do you do you like that quote? Do you agree? Words are, in my not so humble opinion, our most inexhaustible source of magic, capable of both inflicting injury and remedying it. Absolutely. Words are incredibly powerful. You know, as we learn when we were children, they can be incredibly hurtful or they can inspire someone. They can change the course of history. And I, I can't think of of a weapon or a tool that's more powerful than words. I, I realize I'm somewhat pandering to a wordsmith, <laughs> yeah. and a, a wonderful that's writer. True. Maybe I'm uh, that biased. was that was Albus Dumbledore for the for the oh, record. Okay. <laughs> and you know, I will say I'm a huge Harry Potter fan, so I should have known that. No, you but shouldn't it's have known something that. Something that Churchill would have said, especially the not so humble part. I, 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 it was a little bit of a red herring for you. Um, okay, let's move, and we're gonna. I, at some point, I have to let you go, so I will. I will do that. But let's let's talk a little bit about the business of your business, which is always mm-hmm. an interest to to Motley Fool. Listeners, so to whatever extent you're comfortable talking about it, um, for our books, and we've written a few, we've gotten healthy advances that uh, once or twice we more than earned out, but <laughs> we're getting 15% from our publisher. Mm-hmm. That was Simon Schuster taking the other 85. The nature of the industry, at least as we were doing it, and then gave back another 10% to our outstanding literary agent. And we talked before this, and I we found out we had the same <laughs> literary agent, which is pretty funny. I didn't know that at all, but but it's been a few years for us writing writing a book. Are those numbers still about the same? And and for you, do they change now as a consequence of writing one, two, three bestsellers? Um, Well, to be honest, I don't pay that much attention to it. And I know that's a terrible thing, but I'm kind of living in this world with, with kids and books and just laundry and (laughs) trying to get all of that um, figured out. And um, so, it it does work similarly. Um, uh, What happens is, so I I sell a book, um, sell an idea as a nonfiction writer, just the idea, and and they give me an advance, and I get a third of it up front. Uh, When I sign, I get another third. When I turn in the manuscript, and the final third, um, when the book comes out, and then I get royalties. And I've been very fortunate in that the books have sold well, and so I do get royalties twice a year. I get a healthy royalty check, and then whatever they can sell, you know, to from you know another country, or there have been like a few little um, little movie deals. Nothing. That was going to be my next question, Candice. <laughs> um, you know, movie rights <clears throat> option for these books. So, <clears throat> excuse me, the movie rights have been sold for *The River of Doubt*. Um, and they've been sold though for ten years. So yes. they were first sold and kind of re-upped um, once a year. And um, I even saw a script at one point. Um, and then now um, there's a there's a new buyer. And although I was laughing with my husband, and I'm getting up there in years, and but this really brought it home to me because the company who sold it they have this young screenwriter who who they they've hired to 
write the screenplay, and he wrote me this really, really great letter, and they said, he really wants to talk to you. And he, I was talking to him, and he said, you know, I will never forget when The River Doubt came out, when I was a sophomore in high school. <laughs> I was like, oh my God, <laughs> creaking in my chair. <laughs> but so there are those little things that um, come along with it, which, which are great. So um, I think that it, it's a tough way to make a living, um, but it's, it's, it's been a great process for me. It's, it's worked out well. And it sounds like your husband's an entrepreneur. He is, and he's done great. Like I said, he was, um, he was a correspondent with the New York Times for years. He was their bureau chief in Managua, um, late 80s, early 90s, so he covered all the Sandinistas and mm. everything like that. Um, so I'm, I'm actually really glad that he's not doing that anymore. It's a, it's a dangerous job, and he would be gone a lot. Um, but he started his own company. Um, it's sophomore development. It's um, it's publishing in a very sort of per- personalized, targeted way, and it's done really well, and it's doing um, some good in the world as well. So, I'm really proud of it and him. Uh, are we able to... Sure, it's my podcast. Are we able to plug? <laughs> Do you want to throw in a plug for his website oh, or the name so of his nice. business? So, it's my... It's our last name, Ulig, U-H-L-I-G, L-L-C, and they also have a very, very cool website if you, if you want to check it out. Thank you. Sure. Um, <laughs> All right, we're coming near the end, Candice. Word association time. I've already quizzed you once. This is this is this is easier. You oh, ready? Good. You ready? Um, stock market. Know nothing about it. Sadly, <laughs> I need to spend some more time with the Motley Fools. <laughs> well, actually, we want you spending your time where your most uh, comparative advantage, speaking of economics, lives, and I think it's doing what you're doing. But Thank you. Um, d- uh, does does your husband invest? Do you all invest? He does. He does invest, and we do have investments, but mostly he invests in his own company. That's where most of you know everything we make, he makes, um, goes right back into the company and into growing it, and that's really our future. That's Wonderful, and it sounds familiar as as a fellow entrepreneur who yeah. cares a lot more about his own company than the performance of his stock portfolio. But right, but you can control it to, to an, a degree that you can't uh, if your money's out there somewhere else. That is always true. Mm-hmm. Well, Candice, I want to thank you again for visiting Full Headquarters and graciously sharing your time and wit with Motley Fool <laughs> members and rule breakers everywhere. For me, you're giving us the gift of heroes, um, of their stories well told, of real people authentically brought back into our century who can inspire us at a time when. As we mentioned earlier, maybe it's just 2016, many of us need it. So, good luck. We're cheering you on, and we'll be watching. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Well, in conclusion, I was rereading my journal from this year, and I was noting some of my earliest entries. One of my, in fact, one of my New Year's resolutions, I wrote it up on the first of this year, was to study and learn more about heroes and heroism. And at the time, I was reading a Candace Millard book. So, this is a wonderful kind of conclusion. One of those, I feel like it's one of those New Year's resolutions that I actually kept. And I think this weekend made that possible. Thank you, Candace Millard. And thank you, fools. Talk to you soon. Fool on. As always, people on this program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Learn more about Rule Breaker Investing at rbi.fool.com.